to hear what he's saying to us. Just let me read a, a portion from chapter 3, because I'll be reading a fair bit of it through our message this morning. I'm reading from the NIV version. Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, worldly mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you are not yet ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. You are still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarrelling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? For when one says, I follow Paul, another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere human beings? What, after all, is Apollos? And what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose and they will each be rewarded according to their own labour. For we are co-workers in God's service. You are God's field, God's building. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder and someone else is building on it. But each one should build with care. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay or straw, their work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flames. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for this precious time of being able to meet with you and be with each other in this place. We are the church in this place, Lord, and you're the head. And we're asking that you will open our eyes and our hearts and feed us this morning help us to hear from you and only you as we commit ourselves to you and Lord not just to hear but then to do we don't want to be just hearers of the word we want to be doers of the word so Lord teach us and direct our steps we pray in Jesus precious name amen in this chapter as per the last two chapters by the way uh, the Apostle Paul continues to challenge these Corinthian believers about their spiritual immaturity and about their lack of spiritual discernment. Paul can see that these mere infants in Christ are in fact foolishly indulging themselves in the worship of intellectualism and of worldly wisdom. Paul has already uh, explained to them that there are really only two kinds of people in the world. Two kinds of people in the world. He speaks about that in chapter 1 and so on. He, he says, so there are those who because of their faith in Christ are indwelt by the Spirit of God and the wisdom of God. That's the first group of people. The, the second group are those who because of their unbelief 
are not indwelt by the Spirit of God and therefore are not indwelt by the wisdom of God, but are indeed indwelt by the Spirit of the world and the wisdom of the world because of their unbelief in Christ. And in case they haven't quite gotten the picture of what God thinks of the wisdom of the world, the very things that these worldly believers are chasing after... Paul makes it very clear again, as he has been doing. For example, in chapter 1, 19 and 20, have a look at those verses. But Paul says this again in chapter 3, verses 18 to 21. He says this, Do not deceive yourselves. If any of you think that you're wise by the standards of this age, you should become fools, so that you may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight, As it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise are futile. And so Paul quotes from the Old Testament there, both from Job chapter 5 and verse 13 and from Psalm 94 and verse 11. And then in verse 21 he says, So then, no more boasting about human leaders, because that's what they were doing. They were boasting. They were quarrelling. There was jealousy among them. As they assessed and scored by the world standards, these different God-appointed leaders and teachers that God had brought amongst them, such as Paul, Apollos and Cephas, Peter. It's almost like they were using a scorecard. They weren't listening to the message, but they're saying, oh, well, I'll give him a nine for that presentation. Oh, no, 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 I'll give him a five. That sort of nonsense. If we put it in that kind of context today... I mean, is it possible for us to fall into a trap like that today as a church? We kind of are blocking our ears to the, to the real message that God wants to get through. Instead, we're captured perhaps by the presentation or by what that, how they said it and so on and so forth. And you know that while I, I don't agree with everything that William Barclay says, and we've got to be careful with his theology, we do we, we do to be careful with his theology. But I want to say I appreciate what he says about this kind of thing. Let me just read you. It's a fairly long quote, but let me read you. I think it's important. It kind of hits fairly hard, actually. So this is what William Barclay says. He says, It is by this very worldly wisdom that the Corinthians assess the world, sorry, assess the worth of different leaders and, and teachers. It is this pride in the human mind which makes them evaluate and criticize the way in which the message is delivered. The correctness of the rhetoric of the rhetoric make sure I get these words right the correctness of the rhetoric the weight of the oratory the subtleties of the arguments rather than think only of the content of the message itself the trouble about this intellectual pride is that it is always two things firstly it is always it always sorry it is always disputatious It cannot keep silent and admire. It must talk and criticise. It cannot bear to have its opinions contradicted. It must prove that it and and it alone is right. It is never humble enough to learn. It must always be laying down the law. One. Secondly, he says, intellectual pride is characteristically exclusive. He says its tendency, and I love the way he says this, he says its tendency is to look down on others rather than to sit down with them. Isn't that amazing? 
Do we tend to look down on people or do we tend to want to get down with them as Jesus does? He says its outlook is that all who do not agree with it are wrong. And then he quotes something from Oliver Cromwell. He says, long ago Cromwell wrote to the Scots and he said this, I beseech you in the name of Christ, think it possible that you may be mistaken. And then he says, that is precisely what intellectual pride cannot think. It tends to cut people off from each other rather than to unite them. Bit of a mouthful, I don't know whether you've captured all that, but I think there's some good stuff there to just think about. And you know, because of, of, of pride and spiritual immaturity, that there, there certainly was, amongst this group of Corinthian believers, there was disunity amongst them. And Paul identifies that and he says this to them in, in, in verses 1 to 4. Brothers and sisters, he says, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you're not ready for it. Indeed, you're still not ready. You're still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarrelling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans or mere men? <laughs> for where one says, I follow Paul, another says, I follow Apollos, are you not mere human beings? And not indwelt by the Holy Spirit is really what he's saying. And though Paul addresses them, and this is important to get hold of this truth. This is God's amazing grace with all of us. Paul addresses them as brothers and sisters because they are. They're believers. They're believers in Christ. They are the church of God in Corinth. As Paul opened up and spoke about in, in chapter 1 and verse 2. But they are nonetheless worldly and mere infants in Christ as well. Another Bible commentator, D.K. Lowry, he described them saying this. Instead of mature behaviour characterised by humility and concern for others and obedience to God, he said the Corinthians were infantile, self-centred and therefore divisive. They wanted lives of exaltation without, the lives, without lives of humiliation. And you can sense Paul's heart as he typically does with this deep desire. The Apostle Paul longs to bring a correction to this way of thinking among these Corinthian believers. And then Paul in true humility, and it is true humility, he uses Apollos and he uses himself as an example. And he says this to them in verses 5, verse 5 of chapter 3. He says, what after all is Apollos? He says, what is Paul? He said, only servants through whom you came to believe. As the Lord has assigned to each his task. And when Paul uses the words like that, what he's doing is when he says what or when he says who, it, it kind of takes the spotlight off the person and it shines it on the function. Do you know what I mean? So Paul says, so Paul says we are only servants. We're only servants. And the Greek word is diakonoi, from which we get the word deacon, diakon, a deacon. And the original term, the original term of this word, this Greek word, 
um, is, is, it means for those who actually were waiting on tables. Waiting on tables. And it's a, it's, you'd think about it, it's a fairly, fairly humble kind of service, isn't it? But it's exactly what Paul wanted to emphasise because ultimately it's all about the Lord. It's about Jesus. It's all about him. The real work is done by him. Look at verse 5. As the Lord has assigned to each his task. It's the Lord who assigns us. It's the Lord who does this. It's the Lord who builds the house. He does it. His work. We are the privileged vessels and instruments that he uses. But he does the work. It's the same thinking behind the words of the Lord Jesus when he said these beautiful words in John 15, 16, when Jesus said, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, fruit that will remain, fruit that will last. Yep, if you're here this morning, you love the Lord, you know what? You didn't choose him. He chose you before. (laughs) He loved you before you even knew him. It's good to think like that because it puts us back to the right level. It gives us a a genuine humility before God. Because that's the question I want us to think about right now, right at this point. You know, where or who or what might you or I be today if the Lord had not chosen us or appointed us? Where would you be today had Jesus not put his hand on you? Who would you be? What would you be if Jesus hadn't come and looked for you and found you and rescued you? Where would you be today? And you know, when we answer those questions, it causes us just to worship God, say, Lord, thank you. Thank you for looking, for, looking out for something like me. Because one thing's for sure, folks, we would, we'd still be dead in our transgression and sin. It's as simple as that. And, and it's really not much to boast about, is it? Had he not come, had he not chosen us, had he not appointed us. But he did appoint us to bear fruit and fruit that will last. And speaking of fruit, look at verses 6 and 7. Paul says, I planted the seed, Apollos watered it. But God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. Paul and Apollos were the means. They were not the cause of the Corinthians believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. Only God makes things grow. Therefore, we need to worship him. Worship him. Be captivated by him. Not the other human beings that we hear about around the place. Not even the human servants who are themselves redeemed, imperfect vessels that God did choose and appoint as he assigned to each his task. God does the choosing. God does the the appointing. But notice as well that the one who plants and the one who waters are of a complementary service. Not a a competitive one. They complement each other. They don't compete against each other. Paul and Apollos were not competing with each other. 
They weren't competing against each other, but they were indeed complementing each other's ministry. Just like we do right here today, don't you think? In this church, in our service for one, with, with, with each other, for Christ, we need to complement each other, not compete against each other. Amen? And you know, when we do this, this is a clear indication that there is spiritual maturity happening in the life of the church. When people behave like Jesus, well then, he'll bless that, of course. And it is a sign of this spiritual maturity that God is growing his people. And we're listening to him and we're conforming to him and we're being moulded by him. And we're not resisting him or grieving the spirit. Yep, it's a clear indication of spiritual maturity among believers. But the opposite is also true as it was for these carnal Corinthians who were squabbling, who were fighting. They were jealous of each other and I suggest that they were competing against each other. And it was the last thing that Paul and Apollos had in mind that their names become a banner of rival factions in the church. It was the last thing in their mind, but guess what? It was the first thing in Satan's mind. Of course it was. First thing in Satan's evil mind, he seeks to divide and to conquer, of course. How alert are we? How prepared are we for the, for, the, for the schemes of Satan? We sure need to be alert to him and to his devices. And then by prayer, lay hold of the, the, the power and the authority we have in Christ and put the enemy to flight. You see, Paul and Apollos were, and so we need to be, servants. Servant leaders, not masters but fellow laborers for Christ and not for self. It doesn't mean we don't respect their leaders. Of course we need to respect them. We're told to do that. But we don't put them up on a pedestal and worship them. Paul says in verses 8 and 9, chapter 3, the one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose and they will each be rewarded according to their own labor. For we are co-workers. That's what we are. We're co-workers in God's surface. And you are God's field. God's building. So Paul now says to the Corinthians here, the Corinthian church, he said, you are God's field. The church is God's field. The actual meaning is that the church is, or, or this field is God's cultivated field. Cultivated paddock, it's ready to be planted. Cultivated, it's good soil. Cultivated field. And Paul and Apollos and others were God's workers in that field. Interesting, the analogy that Paul uses here no doubt would have brought to the minds of these Corinthian believers the farming in the plain that was happening below the city. They would have known exactly what he was talking about here. The plain, the plain was ploughed, it was cultivated. There were crops that would have been planted. They would have been watered as one would, and one, as one would expect. When that's all done, it will grow. And then was harvested. And apparently, from what I understand, the grapes of Corinth, apparently, for centuries, were known famously far and wide. There you go, the grapes of Corinth. And here's some other useless information, perhaps, is that the word current, like as in Sultana, apparently, is a medieval corruption of the name Corinth. 
Isn't that interesting? No, not really, some say. But there you go. Uh, by the way, that might be a question used in the trivia night coming up on the 21st. Are you aware of that? Maybe. Warren Worsby says this, those who serve in ministry must constantly be caring for the soil of the church. It requires diligence and hard work to produce a, a harvest. What people may think of our ministry is not important. What God may think is of supreme importance. So good to read that. Our reward must not be the praise of people, but the well done of the Lord Jesus, the Lord of the harvest. That's what we look for, not the praises of people. That's fickle. That's up and down. Don't go looking for that, but listen for the well done, the pleasure that God gives you when you serve him faithfully from your heart. That's what we look forward to. Well done, good and faithful servant. Verse 9, for we are co-workers in God's service. You are God's field, God's building. Now he changes the metaphor. The analogy now goes, or well, the imagery now changes from a field to a building. So the church is also a building. And in verses 16 and 17, we are collectively, the church here, God's temple. In chapter 6, he speaks about you individually being the temple of the Holy Spirit. But right here now, he's talking about we are, the, we are God's temple. And its foundation is Jesus Christ alone. It's not Paul. It's not anyone or anything else. The foundation of the church is Jesus Christ alone. Paul says in verses 10 and 11, By the grace of God given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder. And someone else is building on it. But each one should build with care. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. Notice here that, that Paul describes himself as a wise builder. A wise builder. The word means skillful. It means judicious. It means to be thoughtful and careful. Wise builder. And this might seem a fairly obvious question, but... Why is it necessary to be a wise builder? Why is it necessary to be a wise builder? See, Paul says, by the grace of God given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder. You know, as I thought about that, and I don't know much about building, but I've had a bit of experience with building, I suppose. Watching builders, etc. Every builder needs firstly to decide what his foundation will be, and where it will be. Good place to start, isn't it? You start thinking of building a house. What should the foundation be? And where should it be? Interesting. There's an example. Good example uh, was, this, uh, was an actual thing that happened some, I don't know how many years ago, but there were, apparently there was once a particular neighbourhood outside of Chicago... It was a lovely neighbourhood. It was well kept and uh, a nice place to be in. Everything was neat and tidy, etc. It was a lovely neighbourhood. But before too long, the roads began to crack and the houses began to collapse. Not a good place to be. They were obviously worried about this, so a team of inspectors were called in. 
and the inspectors discovered that the whole entire neighbourhood had been built on a previous disused rubbish dump. A wise builder chooses where and what the foundation will be. It's funny, isn't it? Well, it's not funny, it's the wrong word to use, but didn't the same kind of thing happen in Collingwood Park some years ago? You remember perhaps something like that happened when the foundations were damaged by mine, mining subsidence. A wise builder chooses carefully his foundation on which to build. And I love the words of Jesus who brings that home so very, very clearly in this story from John. Where is it from? From Matthew 7. Look, listen to these words. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall. Because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, the wind blew and beat against that house and it fell with a great crash. Magnificent words, aren't they? I mean, just Jesus just puts things so beautifully. And so the question we've got to look at too today is who or what might be your foundation today? What's your foundation? What's supporting you? What's holding you firm when the storms of life hit you? And they have and they will. What foundation is yours? What holds you fast, steadfast and secure when those storms come? You see, Christ is the rock. He alone is the firm foundation. And I want to tell you this morning, everything else is sinking sand or rubbish, decomposing rubbish, as the folk of Chicago found out. And then Paul says that each one should build with care. Make sure your foundation is solid. It needs to be Jesus Christ alone. He's the rock. He's the rock. But what are you going to build on top of that then? How will you build? How will you grow? Interestingly, um, uh, Paul was a tent maker by trade. And I, and I, would, I would suspect that uh, Paul would have seen some pretty shoddy workmanship being done in his day by his certain tradesmen. I think he would have seen lots of stuff being done, shoddy work, shoddy materials being used by builders of tents who didn't care really as long as they got their pay at the end. And we know that happens today. How careful we need to be when we choose a builder to do any work for us because we know, we know that there are those out there who don't care. They don't build with care. They'll have no problem using substandard material and, and basically do substandard work. So if Christ is the foundation of your life, and for the believer, he is, he is. 
then what will you use to build your life and the lives of others as his co-workers in God's service? What are you going to use? What kind of material will you use? <clears throat> Listen to what Paul says, verses 12 to 15. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay or straw, their work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what, the, if what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burnt up, the builder will suffer loss. But yet will be saved even though only as one escaping through the flames. So Paul talks about six kinds of materials, but there's really only two types here, two main types. There's the valuable and then there's the worthless. And you can guess which one will last when the fire, which one will endure when the fire of testing comes against it, which ones will last and which ones simply won't. I think Isaiah had a bit of a view of this when he said these words, Isaiah 40 verse 8, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of our God endures forever. And that's what we build with. For it's only God's word that will endure forever. It's only God's word that will stand any fiery test. One commentator says this, nothing could be clearer than that Paul wanted the teachers in the church to build a superstructure with the same material as the foundation. The foundation was Paul's teaching about Jesus Christ and him crucified. But as the building rises from its foundations, it must be built on the same teaching about who Jesus is and what he's done for us in his death, in his burial, in his resurrection. That's what it's about. It's got to be about Jesus. Anything else will be burnt up. So I want to encourage this church, keep growing, keep maturing in your faith. Keep sharing God's word with those as the Lord has assigned to each his task. Grow, build on the things of Christ. Use the word of God, feed on the word of God, grow in his word. Missionary to India, I'm going to close soon, I'm running out of time. Have run out of time. Uh, missionary to India, Amy Carmichael used to say, the work will never go deeper than we have gone ourselves. If you're in a teaching role and a leading role you, role, you must grow, you must develop in the things of God because what you deliver, it will be the standard that everyone else gets. If you don't go deep, you can't take your people deeper. We have to grow. We've got to grow deeper in the things of God. Wearsby, and I close with this, Wearsby says, the word is food for the family, seed for the field, materials for the temple. The word, it's all about the word. So, dear friends, let's continue to build, let's continue to grow. And, you know, that's how we are transformed, which is what this whole theme for the year is about, transformation. There it is, just another example. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your precious word. As we think of your word, as we think about feeding on your word, Lord, and growing in your word, building on the word of God, Jesus Christ. Recognising the importance of God's word. Father, remember Jesus when he spoke and rebuked Satan in the wilderness and he rebuked him with these words when he said, it is written, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. 
And Heavenly Father, we pray you help us as a people of God here in this church to grow and mature in our faith and feed on your word, Lord. It's how we live. It's how we grow. It's how we build, Lord. And we want to be co-workers with you, building your work and seeing men and women, boys and girls, come into faith in Jesus Christ as you use us, Lord. Use us, mere human beings, vessels, servants of yours, co-workers with you. And we bless you and we thank you. We commit ourselves to you now as we go out into the rest of this day. In Jesus' precious name. Amen.